look, it's Sunday. Look, it's Sunday, and um, the tree, I can see two trees, but the big tree I can see, barely moving. I wouldn't say it was a blue sky, it's a sort of whitish sky, um, full of clouds, but at least it's not chucking it down like it was yesterday, and um, I don't know what's inspired this um, this move towards... Um, Getting It All Done, Getting Through um, The Lost World by Arthur Conan Doyle, Chapter 12. It was dreadful in the forest. I don't know what's inspired it, but um, I must have been on the monkey glands or some similar restorative um, medicine um, popularised in the 1920s, I think, and uh, and onwards, the idea that... Uh, Injecting the pulverised glands from a poor monkey might, um, you know, revivify and brighten your your days by, you know, helping you leap out of bed in the manner of a Kellogg's Cornflakes advert circa 1976. Nevertheless, Chapter 12. It was dreadful. In the forest. This has nothing to do with Gladys, nothing to do with Zambo, everything to do with the four, five, I take it back, intrepid explorers who find themselves trapped up the plateau. And now my Kindle's just um, flipped off as it would do and uh, is now telling me 25% off accessories for Kindle Fire and Echo devices. So let's swipe that and we can get back to it was dreadful. And it's, you know, actually good because my Kindle screen going off warns me that I've digressed far too much and I should be moving seamlessly through the text. And as loyal listeners will know, hey guys, (laughs) 63% is where we are. 63% of this um, worthy text reduced to a percentage but we know it's more than that. It has a value more than a simple percentage at the bottom of your Kindle. It also says lock 1877 to help you locate it that much <laughs> that much more easily. It was dreadful in the forest. How many times need I go over that point? I have said, or perhaps I have not said, for my memory plays sad tricks these days, that I glowed with pride when three such men, as my comrades, thanked me for having saved or at least greatly helped the situation. You'll remember he nipped up a tree, saw a monkey looking rather angry, but, with his uh, carandash pencil set, made it to the topmost branches of the tree, having climbed the bole, and <laughs> having climbed the bole, um, it's like a Salisbury pretzo, um, climbed the uh, bowl, climbed the branches, saw the monkey, kept going with his carandash pencils, produced an ordnance survey uh, map of um, Tony Maple Land or Oak Furniture Village Land, as it's called. I can't remember what it is called. Some Maple White Land, that's right. I wonder if I should go to some sort of memory clinic. Perhaps I need to. 
As the youngster of the party, not merely in years, but in experience, character, knowledge, and all that goes to make a man, I'm still waiting, I had been overshadowed from the first. And now I was coming into my own. There's a joke there somewhere. I warmed at the thought. Alas, for the pride which goes before a fall. That little glow of self-satisfaction, we've all been there, haven't we? That added measure of self-confidence were to lead me on that very night to the most dreadful experience of my life. Of my life, ending with a shock which turns my heart sick when I think of it. Oh dear. It came about in this way. I don't remember this from my decades ago reading of this story, so... We're all in this together. Let's see how surprised we are. I hope that monkey's not involved. It came about in this way. I had been unduly excited by the adventure of the tree. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? The adventure of the tree. And sleep seemed to be impossible. Summerlee was on guard, sitting hunched over our small fire. A quaint, angular figure his rifle across his knees, and his pointed goat-like beard wagging with each weary nod of his head. Lord John lay silent, wrapped in the South American poncho which he wore, while Challenger snored with a roll and rattle which reverberated through the woods. Well, that's not helpful, is it? Apparently sewing a tennis ball into the back of your pyjamas might... Might help with that, or at least it would keep your fingers busy while you thought of other ways to cure yourself of um, of snoring. Lord John lay silent, Challenger snoring. The full moon was shining brightly and the air was crisply cold. What a night for a walk! And then suddenly came the thought, why not? Suppose I stole softly away, suppose I made my way down to the central lake. Suppose I was back at breakfast with some record of the place, would I not in that case be thought an even more worthy associate? I can see, I can see why he thinks that, but, um, you know, it is a, it is a place of swamps and rather deadly animals. Um, Oh, you know, why not? Why not? Then if Summerlee carried the day and some means of escape were found, we should return to London with first-hand knowledge of the central mystery of the plateau, to which I alone, of all men, would have penetrated. I thought of Gladys. I alone, of all men, would have penetrated. I thought of Gladys. With her, there are heroisms all round us. I seemed to hear her voice as she said it. I thought also of McArdle, What a three-column article for the paper. Is that like a three-ringed circus, a three-column article? What a foundation for a career. A correspondentship in the next great war might be within my reach. I clutched at my gun. My pockets were full of cartridges, and parting the thorn bushes at the gate of our Zariba quickly slipped out. Those thorn bush bushes were were a formidable barrier, weren't they? I, yeah, I just parted them. Oh, they weren't prickly at all, and uh, slipped out. 
My last glance showed me the unconscious Summerlee, most futile of sentinels, still nodding away like a queer mechanical toy in front of the smouldering fire. Ancient listeners will remember those curious birds which um, which used to peck away at a glass of glass of water, um, like a sort of flask, test tube thing, glass, and they had a sort of a beak made of, made of some sort of felt. They had a little top hat. They were like a weird ostrich, I think, and um, they'd just pecked away there. <coughs> Excuse me. How unprofessional. I had not gone a hundred yards before I deeply repented my rashness. I don't know what's going on there. Um. Yeah, there's that. You see, yesterday when I put yesterday's one up, and, uh, you know, never have I been more more productive. Um, I bunged in a few um, recordings, or I found them online, and I thought, well, I'll try this uh, road road mixing deck and um the moment i had uploaded chapter 11 um youtube generated uh, oh no you've done a naughty thing you've used copyrightable material if you try to monetize this podcast if you tried well i haven't tried to monetize it but if you do bear in mind you can't because you've used a snatch of sibelius or whatever it was what was it you've used a little bit of no ennio morricone from um um, the mission. And so, you know, it's amazing. These algorithms can just, well, it's not that amazing, is it? It just scans it and picks it up the same, the same waveforms, I suppose, or the same digital imprint as the music and goes, oh, this, this ant upon the leaf, this um, microbe is, is stealing the, um, the works of Decca Record Company you know, just for a fun point, a few bars, a snatch of a few bars. Fair enough if they own it, but, um, you know, it just seems... It just seems so feeble, the whole copyright business, um, in a way that, uh, you know, it's now 95 years after the death of the artist in some places, or 90... Yeah, 95 years. Um, 95 years for the offspring of, you know... I don't know. Think of some futile artist. We're all futile artists in a way, I suppose. But uh, ninety-five years seems a long time to not to be able to share worldwide the artistic um, triumphs of uh, of mankind. Um, while you know, publishers. I don't know. I mean, it just seems ninety-five years just seems too much. 50 years seems like a reasonable amount for your widow to um, to outlive you and enjoy going down the bingo with a couple of quid. She can, um, you know, buy a foot long from Subway and, you know, generally enjoy herself off the back of her husband's um, um, Tom Clancy or Frederick Forsyth. Is he still alive? You know, after he dies, you know, 50 years after he dies, yes, all the all the royalties revert to his widow and offspring fine but 95 years you know anyway i mean whatever anyway i was really just pointing out the the speed and celerity with which the algorithm picked up my my naughty 
um, petty larceny of the mission, Ennio Morricone. And to that end, I've, I've resolved to, to perhaps just get, get a piano, sit at the piano and just play tunes <laughs> to accompany myself because, you know, I'm not allowed clearly on a... Um, I'm not allowed to pepper my devastatingly skillful narration with, with things that I randomly pluck off the internet. Um, so maybe I'll just sit at a cocktail piano, my big Beckstein or Steinway, um, and um, pick away at a few few notes. A few chords might suddenly suddenly pop up uh, to delight and surprise you with my musical dexterity. <laughs> I had not gone a hundred yards before I deeply repented my rashness. I may have said somewhere in this chronicle that I am too imaginative to be a really courageous man, but that I have an overpowering fear of seeming afraid. This was the power which now carried me onwards. I simply could not slink back with nothing done, even if my comrades should not have missed me and should never know of my weakness, there would still remain some intolerable self-shame in my own soul, and possibly in my sleeping bag. And yet I shuddered at the position in which I found myself, and would have given all I possessed at that moment to have been honourably free of the whole business. It was dreadful in the forest. The trees grew so thickly and their foliage spread so widely that I could see nothing of the moonlight save that here and there the high branches made a tangled filigree against the starry sky. Not to be confused with a tangled kedgeree against the starry sky. Looking up gave me a terrible haddock, headache, haddock. As the eyes became more used to the obscurity one learned, that there were different degrees of darkness among the trees, that some were dimly visible, while between and among them there were coal-black shadowed patches, like the mouths of caves, from which I shrank in terror as I passed. I thought of the despairing yell of the tortured Iguanodon, that dreadful cry which had echoed through the woods, I thought, too, of the glimpse I had in the light of Lord John's torch, of that bloated, warty, blood-slavering muzzle. Even now I was on its hunting ground. At any instant it might spring upon me from the shadows, this nameless and horrible monster. I stopped, and picking a cartridge from my pocket, I opened the breech of my gun. As I touched the lever or as our American cousins might say, as I touched the lever. My heart leapt within me. It was the shotgun, not the rifle which I had taken. What a dolt! Or as we would say in America, you know, it, was the, it wasn't the automatic uh, machine gun capable of loosing off 2,000 rounds per second, um, in which I had great confidence. I'd just taken a, a sort of pea-shooter instead. What an idiot. If only I could have told the difference um, between the two in my hands as I, as I picked them up. Now, there's some curious things going on outside today. 
It is Sunday, Sunday morning, bleeding into Sunday afternoon, and um, there is a man who plays the bagpipes in the distance. I kid you not, and he has been playing for about two hours on and off. He doesn't stop very frequently. But just on the edge of hearing, I can hear a bagpiper, a highland bagpiper. Well, what his origins are, I don't know. I mean, he might be from Scunthorpe, but um, he plays lustily in the distance, and um, I'm so glad he doesn't live next door. He might move next door, of course. There's always that risk, but uh, I wonder what his neighbours think. I think they must, um, they must be a tolerant bunch. I can stand the bagpipes for about 8.5 seconds. They're quite a pleasing sound, you know, they're quite um, stirring. And if I was perhaps going into battle with the 7th Southern Sutherland Highlanders or whatever they might be called, I'd probably, you know, they'd give me a bit of um, a bit of Caledonian spunk to get me over the lip. Um as the uh, officer blew his whistle and waved his swagger stick, or more likely his swizzle stick, um, to to encourage me over. Um, so yeah, bagpipes might help me um, bayonet the um, the Bosch or the fuzzy wuzzies during the nineteenth or early twentieth century, or the Boer might have encouraged me at Rourke's drift against the Zulu. But um, but here in suburban England. The sound of the bagpipes is strangely irritating after about, uh, as I say, nine point something seconds. Um, the same time it would um, take me to run a hundred yards. Um, so yeah, you won't be able to hear them, but uh, they are curiously in the distance. The skirl of the pipes. So poor old, um, poor old Mister Malone has parted the thorny bushes of the Zabido, or whatever it's called, the Sudanese thorn enclosure. He's slipped out with his pockets full of um, bullets and his uh, hands on his on his weapon. And why not? He's got a bit scared. He's gripped on even tighter to his Winchester 74, or whatever it is. But imagine his horror when he discovers it's just a shotgun and his bullets in his pocket won't fit in. It was the shotgun, not the rifle, which I had taken. Again, the impulse to return swept over me. My stomach's making the most curious noises. I do apologise. Here, surely, was a most excellent reason for my failure, one for which... The Kindle turns seamlessly. One for which no one would think the less of me. Well, I don't know. Yes, I, I was going out into a very dangerous country, and I... I had a pocket full of bullets and I just grabbed, grabbed something, grabbed a weapon. Turns out it was a toasting fork. Um, but no one would think the less of me. But again, the foolish pride fought against that very word. I could not, must not fail. I'd have been slipping back into that thorny zabido um, corral quicker than spit. Lickety spit or split or whatever. After all, my rifle would probably have been as useless as a shotgun against such dangers as I might meet. 
If I were to go back to camp to change my weapon, I could hardly expect to enter and to leave again without being seen. Well, why not? Summerley's asleep. Challenger's snoring. Lord John is sort of... Who knows what he's doing? In that case, there would be explanations, and my attempt would no longer be all my own. After a little hesitation, then, I screwed up my courage and continued upon my way, my useless gun under my arm. Well, you could beat one of those naughty monkeys to death with the butt, couldn't you? The darkness of the forest had been alarming. But even worse was the white, still flood of moonlight in the open glade of the iguanodons. Hid among the bushes, I looked out at it. None of the great brutes were in sight. They're relatively harmless, though, aren't they? Just grazing on on the rocket and cress. Perhaps the tragedy which had befallen one of them had driven them from their feeding ground. In the misty, silvery night, I could see no sign of any living thing. Taking courage, therefore, I slipped rapidly across it, and among the jungle, on the farther side, I picked up once again the brook, which was my guide. It was a cheery companion, gurgling and chuckling as it ran, like the dear old trout stream in the West Country, where I fished at night in my boyhood, possibly Dorset, Somerset, or Devon. Uh, Let me have a little drink. I can tell this is going to be a really long and tedious... Well, not tedious. I mean, I, I like the writing. I remember, you know, how thrilling it was when I first first read this. Um, it was. Let me uh, drink. For God's sake, let me drink. So long as I followed it down, I must come to the lake. And so long as I followed it back, I must come to the camp. Often I had to lose sight of it on account of the tangled brushwood, but I was always within earshot of its tinkle and splash. As one descended the slopes, as one descended the slope, the woods became thinner, and bushes with occasional high trees took the place of the forest. I could make good progress, therefore, and I could see without being seen. Don't be so sure. I passed close to the pterodactyl swamp, and as I did so, with a dry, crisp, leathery rattle of wings, one of these great creatures, it was twenty feet at least from tip to tip, rose up from somewhere near me and soared into the air. Oh, so they're nocturnal as well, are they? Perhaps they're solely nocturnal. Um, Yes, perhaps they are. As it passed across the face of the moon, the light shone clearly through the membranous wings and it looked like a flying skeleton against the white tropical radiance. I crouched low among the bushes, for I knew from past experience that with a single cry the creature could bring a hundred of its loathsome mates about my ears. It was not until it had settled again that I dared to steal onwards upon my journey. There's the piper, keeps going. The night had been exceedingly still, but as I advanced I became conscious of a low, rumbling sound, a continuous murmur somewhere in front of me. This grew louder as I proceeded, until at last it was clearly quite close to me. So a low rumbling sound, okay, continuous murmur, yes, yes. When I stood still the sound was constant, 
so that it seemed to come from some stationary cause. It was like a boiling kettle or the bubbling of some great pot. Soon I came upon the source of it, for in the centre of a small clearing I found a lake, or a pool, rather, for it was not larger than the basin of the Trafalgar Square fountain. Well, I've got that in mind very clearly, because it was um, thronged with people yesterday at an anti anti um, government health policy um, rally and march in London, whatever yesterday was, it's Sunday today, and there were thousands of people there. Not mentioned in the press very much, of course, um, nor was the one in Berlin, but um, there was a huge anti-government, anti, what would you call it, anti-WHO lockstep march towards um, tyrannous things, tyrannous things. We all love a tyrannous thing, don't we? Um, Anyway, so Trafalgar Square Fountain, jammed with people of some black, pitch-like stuff, the surface of which rose and fell in great blisters of bursting gas. Okay, well, I found a lake, of some black, pitch-like stuff, the surface of which rose and fell in great blisters of bursting gas. The air above it was shimmering with heat, and the ground round was so hot that I could hardly bear to lay my hand on it, You're not wearing your flip-flops, then. You're not wearing your fit-flops or your espadrilles. You've got a sturdy pair of um, rugger boots that you took from your alma mater, Alma Kogan. It was clear that the great volcanic outburst which had raised this strange plateau so many years ago had not yet entirely spent its forces Blackened rocks and mounds of lava I had already seen everywhere, peeping out from amid the luxuriant vegetation which draped them. But this asphalt pool in the jungle was the first sign that we had of actual existing activity on the slopes of the ancient crater. I had no time to examine it further, for I had need to hurry if I were to be back in camp in the morning. It was a fearsome walk, and one which will be with me so long as memory holds. That's a good expression, isn't it? Will be with me so long as memory holds. It does imply that even then many people lost their memories. I'm going to pause this. Unusually, I'm going to pause this to have a good old hack. I don't think it's fair for me to hack into the telephone. In telephone, microphone, one moment. And there we are, uh, crickets um, covering what was a well, a good old hack. And um, sorry about that. Just uh, you know, I don't know what it is. Just a little bit claggy. If I can use that um, unholy term, it was a fearsome walk, and one which will be with me so long as memory holds. In the great moonlight clearings, I slunk along among the shadows on the margin. In the jungle, I crept forward stopping with a beating heart whenever I heard, as I often did, the crash of breaking branches as some wild beast went past. Now and then great shadows loomed up for an instant and were gone, great silent shadows which seemed to prowl upon padded feet. 
how often I stopped with the intention of returning. And yet every time my pride conquered my fear, pride, terrible thing, and sent me on again until my object should be attained. At last, my watch showed that it was one in the morning. Well, I hope he... I hope he had done that thing that they always do in films where they, um, you know, in Stalag Luft 21 or The Wooden Horse or um, some escape from a Japanese prisoner of war camp. You know, they always, uh, you know, put some pillows or or a sort of mannequin in their beds. Um, so there's a, there's a lump when the old guards come round with their bayonets to test for, to test for the number of people who should be there. Uh, I hope he did that, because if he didn't, you know, they could be more worried and all all sort of going out in all directions looking for him. I saw, at last, it's one in the morning, I saw the gleam of water amid the openings of the jungle, and ten minutes later I was among the reeds upon the borders of the central lake. I was exceedingly dry, so I lay down and took a long draught of its waters, which were fresh and cold. There was a broad pathway with many tracks upon it at the spot which I had found, so that it was clearly one of the drinking places of the animals. Close to the water's edge there was a huge isolated block of lava. Upon this I climbed, and lying on the top I had an excellent view in every direction— the first thing which I saw filled me with amazement. When I described the view from the summit of the great tree, I said that on the farther cliff I could see a number of dark spots, which appeared to be the mouths of caves. Now, as I looked up at the same cliffs, I saw discs of light in every direction, ruddy, clearly defined patches like the portholes of a liner in the darkness. For a moment I thought it was the lava glow from some volcanic action. But this could not be so. Any volcanic action would surely be down in the hollow, and not high among the rocks. What then was the alternative? Anybody answers on a postcard. It was wonderful, and yet it must surely be. These ruddy spots must be the reflection of fires within the caves. Fires, which could only be lit by the hand of man. There were human beings then upon the plateau. How gloriously my expedition was justified. Here was news indeed for us to bear back with us to London. For a long time I lay and watched these red, quivering blotches of light. I suppose they were ten miles off from me, yet even at that distance one could observe how, from time to time, they twinkled, or were obscured as someone passed before them. How interesting! What would I not have given to be able to crawl up to them, to peep in, and to take back some word to my comrades as to the appearance and character of the race who lived in so strange a place— it was out of the question for the moment, and yet surely we could not leave the plateau until we had some definite knowledge upon the point. Lake Gladys. My own lake. Like Veronica Lake. Lay like a sheet of quicksilver before me. 
with a reflected moon shining brightly in the centre of it. It was shallow, for in many places I saw low sandbanks protruding above the water. Everywhere upon the still surface I could see signs of life, sometimes mere rings and ripples in the water, sometimes the gleam of a great silver-sided fish in the air, sometimes the arched, slate-coloured back of some passing monster. Once upon a yellow sandbank I saw a creature like a huge swan, with a clumsy body and a high, flexible neck, shuffling about on the margin. Presently it plunged in, and for some time I could see the arched neck and darting head undulating over the water. Then it dived, and I saw it no more. My attention was soon drawn away from these distant sights and brought back to what was going on at my very feet. Two creatures like large armadillos had come down to the drinking place and were squatting at the edge of the water, their long flexible tongues like red ribbons shooting in and out as they lapped. A huge deer with branching horns, a magnificent creature which carried itself like a king, came down with its doe and two fawns and drank beside the armadillos. Very nice. No such deer exist anywhere else upon earth, for the moose or elks which I have seen would hardly have reached its shoulders. Presently it gave a warning snort and was off with its family among the reeds, while the armadillos also scuttled for shelter. A newcomer, a most monstrous animal, was coming down the path for a moment I wondered where I could have seen that ungainly shape, that arched back with triangular fringes along it, that strange bird-like head held close to the ground. Then it came back to me. It was the Stegosaurus, the very creature which Maple White had preserved in his sketchbook, and which had been the first object which arrested the attention of Challenger, there he was, perhaps the very specimen which the American artist had encountered. The ground shook beneath his tremendous weight, and his gulpings of water resounded through the still night. For five minutes he was so close to my rock that, by stretching out my hand, I could have touched the hideous waving hackles upon his back. Then he lumbered away and was lost among the boulders. Looking at my watch, I saw that it was half-past two o'clock, and high time, therefore, that I started upon my homeward journey. There was no difficulty about the direction in which I should return, for all along I had kept the little brook upon my left, and it opened into the central lake within a stone's throw of the boulder upon which I had been lying. I set off, therefore, in high spirits, for I felt that I had done good work— and was bringing back a fine budget of news for my companions. A fine budget of news. Well, that does call for a little investigation on my part. An annual or other regular estimate. Well, a quantity of written or printed material. OK, well, it's a... Yes, he's bringing back a fine budget of news for my companions. Foremost of all, of course... 
were the sight of the fiery caves and the certainty that some troglodytic race inhabited them. Troglodytes, troglodytes. But besides that, I could speak from experience of the central lake. I could testify that it was full of strange creatures, and I had seen several landforms of primeval life which we had not before encountered. I reflected as I walked that few men in the world could have spent a stranger night or added more to human knowledge in the course of it. Pride. I was plodding up the slope, turning these thoughts over in my mind, and had reached a point which may have been halfway to home, when my mind was brought back to my own position by a strange noise behind me. It was something between a snore and a growl, low, deep, and exceedingly menacing. Some strange creature was evidently near me, but nothing could be seen. So I hastened more rapidly upon my way. I had traversed half a mile or so when suddenly the sound was repeated, still behind me, but louder and more menacing than before. My heart still stood within me as it flashed across me that the beast, whatever it was, must surely be after me. My scrin, my scrin, goo cold. My scrin goo cold, and my hair rose at the thought. That these monsters should tear each other to pieces was a part of the strange struggle for existence. But that they should turn upon modern man, that they should deliberately track and hunt down the predominant human, was a staggering and fearsome thought. Why? I remembered again the blood-beslobbered face which we had seen in the glare of Lord John's torch, like some horrible vision from the deepest circle of Dante's hell. With my knees shaking beneath me, I stood and glared with starting eyes down the moonlit path which lay behind me. All was quiet as in a dream landscape. Silver clearings and the black patches of the bushes, nothing else could I see. Then from out of the silence, imminent and threatening, there came once more that low, throaty croaking, far louder and closer than before. There could no longer be a doubt. Something was on my trail, and was closing in upon me every minute. I stood like a man paralysed, still staring at the ground which I had traversed. Then suddenly I saw it. There was movement among the bushes at the far end of the clearing which I had just traversed. A great dark shadow disengaged itself and hopped out into the clear moonlight. I say hopped, advisedly, for the beast moved like a kangaroo, springing along in an erect position upon its powerful hind legs, while its front ones were held bent in front of it. It was of, of enormous size and power, like an erect elephant, but its movements, in spite of its bulk, were exceedingly alert. For a moment, as I saw its shape, I hoped that it was an iguanodon, which I knew to be harmless, but, ignorant as I was, I soon saw that this was a very different creature. Instead of a gentle deer-shaped head of the great three-toed leaf-eater, this beast had a broad, squat, toad-like face, like that which had alarmed us in our camp. 
his ferocious cry and the horrible energy of his pursuit. Both assured me that this was surely one of the great flesh-eating dinosaurs, the most terrible beasts which have ever walked this earth. As the huge brute loped along, it dropped forward upon its four paws and brought its nose to the ground every twenty yards or so. It was smelling out my trail, my spoor, doesn't say that. Sometimes for an instant it was at fault. Then it would catch up again and come bounding swiftly along the path I had taken. Even now, when I think of that nightmare, the sweat breaks out upon my brow. What could I do? My useless fowling piece was in my hand. What help could I get from that? I looked desperately round for some rock or tree, but I was in a bushy jungle with nothing higher than a sapling within sight, while I knew that the creature behind me could tear down an ordinary tree as though it were a reed. My only possible chance lay in flight. I could not move swiftly over the rough, broken ground, but as I looked round me in despair, I saw a well-marked, hard-beaten path which ran across in front of me. We had seen several of the sort, the runs of various wild beasts during our expeditions. Along this I could perhaps hold my own, for I was a fast runner and in excellent condition. Flinging away my useless gun, I set myself to do such a half-mile as I have never done before or since. My limbs ached, my chest heaved, I felt that my throat would burst for want of air, and yet with that horror behind me I ran and ran and ran. At last I paused, hardly able to move. For a moment I thought that I had thrown him off. The path lay still behind me. And then suddenly, with a crashing and a rending, a thudding of giant feet and a panting of monster lungs, the beast was upon me once more. He was at my very heels. I was lost. Madman that I was to linger so long before I fled. Up to then he had hunted by scent, and his movement was slow. But he had actually seen me as I started to run. From then onwards he had hunted by sight, for the path showed him where I had gone. Now as he came round the curve he was springing in great bounds. The moonlight shone upon his huge projecting eyes, the row of enormous teeth in his open mouth, and the gleaming fringe of claws upon his short powerful forearms. With a scream of terror I turned and rushed wildly down the path. Behind me the thick, gasping breathing of the creature sounded louder and louder. His heavy footfall was beside me. Every instant I expected to feel his grip upon my back. And then suddenly there came a crash. I was falling through space, and everything beyond was darkness and rest. And rest. As I emerged from my unconsciousness, which could not, I think, have lasted more than a few minutes, I was aware of a most dreadful and penetrating smell. Well, it's understandable. Putting out my hand in the darkness, I came upon something which felt like a huge lump of meat, while my other hand closed upon a large bone. A 
above me there was a circle of starlit sky which showed me that I was lying at the bottom of a deep pit. Slowly I staggered to my feet and felt myself all over. I was stiff and sore from head to foot, but there was no limb which would not move, no joint which would not bend. As the circumstances of my fall came back into my confused brain, I looked up in terror, expecting to see that dreadful head silhouetted against the paling sky. There was no sign of the monster, however, nor could I hear any sound from above. I began to walk slowly round, therefore, feeling in every direction to find out what this strange place could be, into which I had been so opportunely precipitated. It was, as I have said, a pit, with sharply sloping walls and a level bottom about twenty feet across. This bottom was littered with great gobbets of flesh. Gobbets. Now, <laughs> gobbets. Uh, very few people, I expect, will have done um, A-level history at the time I did A-level history, but... The, but gobbets were the um, it was the it was the watchword of nineteen um, eighties early nineteen eighties oh early nineteen eighties yeah I suppose early nineteen eighties um, history teaching a gobbet was I'm sure you know and I've just remembered the word was a little chunk of text a little enticing. Uh, lump of meat, I suppose, a bit of text from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, or more likely from the um, from some sort of manifestos of the levellers or the diggers or Win Stanley or one of those guys, who, you know. We shall stand against when Adam Delft and Eve Spann and all that sort of malarkey. Um, yeah, Gobbit. We will study Gobbit's 8 to 16... Anyway, that's enough of gobbets. There are gobbets of flesh floating about here, most of which was in the last state of putridity. That's a word you don't come across very often, is it either? Putridity. The atmosphere was poisonous and horrible. It's a bit like the salad drawer in our fridge. The atmosphere was poisonous and horrible. After tripping and stumbling over these lumps of decay, I came suddenly against something hard. Sorry, I've just opened the wrong book. Um, and I found that an upright post was firmly fixed in the centre of the hollow. It was so high that I could not reach the top of it with my hand, and it appeared to be covered with grease. Suddenly I remembered that I had a tin box of wax vestas in my pocket. Striking one of them, I was able at last to form some opinion of this place into which I had fallen. There could be no question as to its nature. It was a trap made by the hand of man. The post in the centre, some nine feet long, was sharpened at the upper end and was black, with the stale blood of the creatures who had been impaled upon it. The remains scattered about were fragments of the victims, which had been cut away in order to clear the stake for the next who might blunder in. I remember the challenger had declared that man could not exist upon the plateau. I, de I remembered, in fact, that challenger had declared that, that man could not exist upon the plateau, since, with his feeble weapons, he could not hold his own against the monsters who roamed over it. But now it was clear enough how it could be done. In their narrow-mouthed caves, 
The natives, whoever they might be, had refuges into which the huge Saurians could not penetrate, while with their developed brains they were capable of setting such traps covered with branches across the paths which marked the run of the animals as would destroy them in spite of all their strength and activity. Man was always the master. The sloping wall of the pit was not difficult for an active man to climb, Oh, that's me buggered then. But I hesitated long before I trusted myself within reach of the dreadful creature which had so nearly destroyed me. How did I know that he was not lurking in the nearest clump of bushes waiting for my reappearance? I took heart, however, as I recalled a conversation between Challenger and Summerlee upon the habits of the great Saurians. Maybe Saurians? Or is that a bit... Tolkien-esque, I don't know, Sauron, Sauron. Um, I don't care. Both were agreed that the monsters were practically brainless. The bagpiper has started up again. He's paused for a quick cappuccino and a and an almond Danish, and he's off again. I hope he doesn't clog his chanter with with flaky pastry. Um. That would be a blow for his neighbours. I took heart, however, as I recalled a conversation between Challenger and Summerlee upon the habits of the great Saurians. Both were agreed that the monsters were practically brainless, though there was no room for reason in their tiny cranial cavities, and that if, and that if they have disappeared from the rest of the world, it was assuredly on account of their own stupidity, which made it impossible for them to adapt themselves to changing conditions. Oh dear, so they were we're blaming their intelligence, are we? Well, that's not very nice, is it? To lie in wait for me now would mean that the creature had appreciated what had happened to me, and this, in turn, would argue some power connecting cause and effect. Surely it was more likely that a brainless creature, acting solely by vague predatory instinct, would give up the chase when I disappeared, and after a pause of astonishment would wander away in search of some other prey. They can't be that stupid. I clambered to the edge of the pit and looked over. The stars were fading. The sky was whitening. And the cold wind of morning blew pleasantly upon my face. I could see or hear nothing of my enemy. Slowly I climbed out and sat for a while upon the ground, ready to spring back into my refuge if any danger should appear. Then, reassured by absolute stillness and by the growing light, I took my courage in both hands and stole back along the path which I had come. Some distance down it I picked up my gun and shortly afterwards struck the brook which was my guide. So with many a frightened backward glance I made for home. And suddenly there came something to remind me of my absent companions. It was a wrapper from a walnut whip blowing gently from side to side on the path. In the clear, still morning air there sounded far away the sharp, hard note of a single rifle shot. I paused and listened, but there was nothing more. For a moment I was shocked at the thought that some danger might have befallen them. But then a simpler and more natural explanation came to my mind. It was now broad daylight. No doubt my absence had been noticed. They had imagined that I was lost in the woods— and had fired this shot to guide me home. 
It is true that we had made a strict resolution against firing, but it seemed to them that I might be in danger. They would not... But if it seemed to them that I might be in danger, they would not hesitate. It was for me now to hurry on as fast as possible, and so to reassure them. Well, yeah. You've not been very thoughtful, have you, really? To be perfectly honest, you have not been very thoughtful. And that's... And that is regrettable. That is very regrettable, you know. I don't know whether I had this on the right levels or not, because... Anyway, there we are. Too late. Too late for that. It is what it is. And um, there we are. I was weary and spent. So my progress was not so fast as I wished, but at last I came into regions which I knew... There was the swamp of the pterodactyls upon my left. There in front of me was the glade of the iguanodons. Now I was in the last belt of trees which separated me from Fort Challenger. I raised my voice in a cheery shout to allay their fears. No answering greeting came back to me. My heart sank at that ominous stillness. I quickened my pace into a run. The zareba rose before me even as I had left it. But the gate was open. I rushed in. In the cold morning light it was a fearful sight which met my eyes. Our effects were scattered in wild confusion over the ground. My comrades had disappeared, and close to the smouldering ashes of our fire the grass was stained crimson with a hideous pool of blood. I was so stunned by this sudden shock that for a time I must have nearly lost my reason. I have a vague recollection, as one remembers a bad dream, of rushing about through the woods all round the empty camp, calling wildly for my companions. No answer came back from the silent shadows. The horrible thought that I might never see them again, that I might find myself abandoned all alone in that dreadful place with no possible way of descending into the world below, that I might live and die in that nightmare country, drove me to desperation. I could have torn my hair and beaten my head in despair. Only now did I realise how I had learned to lean upon my companions, upon the serene self-confidence of Challenger, and upon the masterful, humorous coolness of Lord John Roxton. Without them I was like a child in the dark, helpless and powerless. I did not know which way to turn or what I should do first. After a period during which I sat in bewilderment, I set myself to try and discover what sudden misfortune could have befallen my companions. The whole disordered appearance of the camp showed that there had been some sort of attack, and the rifle shot no doubt marked the time when it had occurred. That there should have been only one shot showed that it had been all over in an instant. The rifle still lay upon the ground, and one of them, Lord John's, had the empty cartridge in the breech. The blankets of Challenger and of Summerlee beside the fire suggested that they had been asleep at the time. The cases of ammunition and of food were scattered about in a wild litter, together with our unfortunate cameras and plate carriers, but none of them were missing. On the other hand, all the exposed provisions 
and I remembered that there was a considerable quantity of them, were gone. They were animals then, and not natives, who had made the inroad. For surely the latter would have left nothing behind. Oh yes, we need those photographic plates up in our cave. They'd be so useful. But if animals, or some single terrible animal, then what had become of my comrades? If ferocious beast... No, a ferocious beast would surely have destroyed them and left their remains. God, I could do with a cup of coffee. It is true that there there was that one hideous pool of blood which told of violence. Such a monster as had pursued me during the night could have carried away a victim as easily as a cat would a mouse. In that case, the others would have followed in pursuit, but then they would assuredly have taken their rifles with them. The more I tried to think it out with my confused and weary brain, the less could I find any plausible explanation. I searched round in the forest, but could see no tracks, but could see no tracks, which could help me to a conclusion. Once I lost myself, and it was only by good luck and after an hour of wandering that I found the camp once more. Suddenly, a thought came to me and brought some little comfort to my heart. I was not absolutely alone in the world. Down at the bottom of the cliff and within call of me was waiting the faithful Zambo. Oh, brilliant, good old Zambo. I went to the edge of the plateau and looked over. Sure enough, he was squatting among his blankets beside his fire in his little camp. But to my amazement, a second man was seated in front of him. For an instant my heart leapt for joy as I thought that one of my comrades had made his way safely down. Well, how's he going to do that? But a second glance dispelled the hope. The rising sun shone red upon the man's skin. He was an Indian. I shouted loudly and waved my handkerchief. Presently Zambo looked up, waved his hand in the absence of a clean, well-starched hanky, and turned to ascend the pinnacle. In a short time he was standing close to me and listening with deep distress to the story which I told him. "'Devil got them for sure, Massa Malone,' said he. "'You got into the devil's country, sir, and he take you all to himself. You take advice, Massa Malone, and come down quick, else he get you as well.' "'How can I come down, Zambo?' You get creepers from trees, Massa Malone. Throw them over here. I make fast to this stump, and so you have bridge. We have thought of that. There are no creepers here which could bear us. Send for ropes, Massa Malone. Who can I send? And where? Send to Indian villages, sir. Plenty hide rope in Indian village. Indian down below. Send him. Who is he? One of our Indians. Other ones beat him and take away his pay. He come back to us. Ready now to take letter, bring rope, anything. To take a letter? Why not? Perhaps he might bring help. But in any case he would ensure that our lives were not spent for nothing and that news of all that we had won for science should reach our friends at home. I had two completed letters already waiting. I would spend the day in writing a third. Yes, spend the day doing it, why not? Which would bring my experiences absolutely up to date. 
The Indian, excuse me, the Indian could bear this back to the world. I ordered Zambo, therefore, to come again in the evening, and I spent my miserable and lonely day in recording my own adventures of the night before. I also drew up a note, to be given to any white merchant or captain of a steamboat whom the Indian could find, imploring them to see that ropes were sent to us, since our lives must depend upon it. These documents I threw to Zambo in the evening, and also my purse, which contained three English sovereigns. These were to be given to the Indian, and he was promised twice as much if he returned with the ropes. So now you will understand, my dear Mr. McArdle, how this communication reaches you, and you will also know the truth, in case you never hear again from your unfortunate correspondent, Tonight I am too weary and too depressed to make my plans. A chicken and mushroom pot noodle awaits, and perhaps a crunchy for afters. Tomorrow I must think out some way by which I shall keep in touch with this camp, and yet search round for any traces of my unhappy friends. And that, my dears, concludes chapter 12, and we head towards Lucky for Some, except perhaps the listener, chapter 13, which is titled A Sight Which I Shall Never Forget. Um, Possibly a, a monkey on a stegosaurus rowing across Lake Gladys uh, with a walnut whip in either hand. That would be a sight which I would never forget, but uh, I fear it may be something much more pedestrian and dull. And um, I'm glad I haven't played you any Ennio Morricone today. That means I can monetize this and earn upwards of £3.50, two shillings and sixpence possibly in old money. And uh, the crickets beckon us off stage left. And I say good night, farewell, sleep well. Yeah.